Welcome to Dr. Brian Boxer-Wackler's Health Show. Dr. Brian will pull the curtain back on viral TikTok health videos and label them as cap, false, or no cap, true. Even if you aren't on TikTok, now is the time to get on board, have fun, and join his podcast. Dr. Brian is a board-certified eye surgeon specializing in advanced LASIK, keratoconus, wider eyes, dry eyes, cataract surgery, and reading vision improvement at the Boxer Walkler Vision Institute in Beverly Hills, California. Also, please remember, Dr. Brian is a doctor, but he is not your doctor. He is here to provide general information, not medical advice. So you should always check with your doctor before relying on any information. I'm really excited for our guest today. This is Dr. David Weil. And he is a very unique type of physician. He's a surgeon. He's a lung transplant surgeon who used to run the program at Stanford for 10 years. And he's also testified before Congress. And he's just a very interesting, knowledgeable person who's just got a very unique take on medicine. And he has his own story that we're going to get into. And he's also published a book that's really a fascinating book about his experience and it's called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. So we're going to get into that as well. But first, I'd just like to you know, welcome you, David. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. So maybe first we could just jump in and talk a little bit about your history, taking us back, maybe not to the womb, but you know, <laughs> like where you grew up, how you got into medicine, and just kind of bringing us a little bit up to date on who you are and how you got there. Yeah, I grew up in New Orleans. I come from a medical family. My mom's a nurse. My father was a pulmonary physician or a researcher at Tulane University, where he led the pulmonary department there for many years. So I was around medicine all my life. I was the kind of guy that grew up going with my father to the hospital on the weekends. I worked in hospitals in high school and college. I always wanted to be a doctor. And sure enough, that's what I became. And now, how did you get interested in surgery and particularly transplants? Yeah, so when I was an intern in 1990 at Parkland Hospital, one of the upper-level residents got sick mm. on the kidney transplant service and had to miss about six weeks. And they asked for an intern volunteer that could actually do a lot of the scut work on the service. So I volunteered, and so they hired me right away. And I went in there. And the first night we were there, we did a kidney transplant, and I couldn't believe it. The guy started making urine for the first time in 11 years. Mm. And at that point, I was hooked. I ended up being more interested in heart and lung transplant, but it was on the kidney transplant service that I fell in love with. So then you go through, at this point, medical school. Well, you were an intern at that stage, and then you go into general surgery. No, I actually, I trained in pulmonology. So oh. I'm actually a transplant pulmonologist. So what I did is in our world, the pulmonary team actually runs the transplant service. Mm -hmm. Not that the surgeons don't have an important part, they do. But in our world, we did pretty much all the pre-op work. We picked the candidates for the waiting list. We picked out the donors. We took care of the patients post-operatively. Even my patients thought I was a surgeon that actually did the <laughs> operation, but I'm not. So like when you're looking at scarce resources, right, because there's only so many lungs that can be transplanted and it sounds like you're in charge then of making these decisions, what goes into that decision making and how much of a shortage for lungs are there for transplants? Yeah, we only use about 20% 
of the organs that are presented to us for lung transplant. So there's a real shortage. And one in five patients who are listed for a lung transplant will die on the waiting list. So there's a real shortage, not only in lung, but in the other organs as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's some new technologies coming along that are going to address that. But at the same time, this is a situation we're still mm -hmm. in. So what I tried to do is use every single organ that was available to us. And that involved taking some risk. And one of the things that's important in our business is to make sure that if you're going to practice that, you're comfortable with risk. And so I would try to start out with the answer being yes, when we took an organ donor and then work my way back mm. to no. Mm -hmm. and so I was very aggressive when it came to picking organs out. And you know, talking about reasons that people need to have a lung transplant, what are some of the top you know, five reasons that people need that? Yeah, there's four big ones. The cystic fibrosis, mm. pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary hypertension, and emphysema would be the four big ones. We also at Stanford had an interest in combined heart-lung transplants, and we did more than anybody else in the world. And we would do congenital heart disease patients that had ultimately had pulmonary vascular disease, and we did combine heart-lung transplants on those patients as well. So when we talk about cystic fibrosis, just so everyone understands, this is a genetic disease where there's a certain protein that's not being made that causes the lungs to start scarring, essentially. Is that right? Yeah, they have an inability to fight off infections, and their lungs ultimately become destroyed by the repeated infections. Now, is there now gene therapy, maybe that I recall hearing about for yeah. this that can perhaps yeah. treat this? There's some great stuff going on in CF. As a matter of fact, I think that not only are the number of transplants for cystic fibrosis diminishing, I think they're going to be eliminated eventually. Mm -hmm. I think that the therapy has been remarkable. There's been gene modification, but there's also better treatment of the infections and you know we're pushing back the life expectancy of those patients really every year when i started out in the field the life expectancy was you know a teenager 17 18 years mm -hmm. old it's now 45 or 50 i think incredible now. yeah so even in the course of my career it's been miraculous now emphysema was one of the big ones and why don't you talk about what causes emphysema cigarette smoking far and away and we transplant patients who have quit cigarette smoking. Not to say that we've never had a patient that's gone back to cigarette smoking after their transplant, but the vast majority receive their new lung after having quit smoking, but emphysema results anyway. And then they go off and you know live a normal transplant life after that. And I just realized as you're explaining that, maybe not everybody understands what emphysema is. So do you want to kind of speak to that, yeah. define that? And how cigarettes cause it? Yeah. Smoking-related lung disease like emphysema is a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Some people might have heard of COPD. Mm -hmm. That's the same same thing, essentially. And cigarette smoking far and away is a leading cause of that. There are other more rare causes of it, but that's cigarette smoking in our country is the biggest cause. And in fact, in the third world, it's becoming more and more common because the cigarette rates keep going up there. People smoking more there than in America. And so it's the smoke that's causing damage to what part of the lungs specifically? Yeah, the, to the airways. And then ultimately, as the disease progresses, there's a loss of the architecture of the lung. 
such that you ended up getting these emphysematous spaces, so just air-filled spaces that can't exchange gas. In other words, they don't do what the lung was designed to do, which is get rid of carbon dioxide and get oxygen in. Mm -hmm. They can't do any of those things. So basically, essentially what I'm hearing is the smoke damages the little tiny openings or the architecture in the lungs. And now ophthalmologist here, going way back to what I remember from medical school, alveoli, or maybe, is that what they're called? That's it. That's exactly ding, right. Ding, you ding, got ding, it. Ding. You got it. And, and actually, please don't ask me anything about the eyes. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll stay away for your benefit. Then. So right. then, yeah, those little tiny, so like we all have these little tiny air pockets, thousands, right? Probably hundreds of thousands of little tiny air, like the openings go in and they splinter off and get little tiny, a lot of surface area for air exchange. Yeah. yeah. But one of the fun party facts that I can give your listeners is if you actually took one lung and took these tiny air sacs, and there's billions of them, and you lay them flat, it would cover a tennis court. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of surface area to do the job it needs to do. Well, I'll tell you, David, I'm playing pickleball this afternoon. I'm going to have a good (laughs) analogy for the court (laughs) when I go out there with my peeps. (laughs) There you go. So the smoke is causing damage to these like really intricate airways. And that's why people eventually you see people like walking around with oxygen because at that point they're just not able to get enough oxygen. They have to be with like a oxygen like cannula to help compensate. Yeah, all the patients we transplant are on 24-7 supplemental oxygen. Okay. You know, so they're tethered to that. And then when we transplant them, of course, they aren't, mm-hmm. which is one of the patient's real motivations for getting the transplant in the first place. So you've seen a big transition from smoking to people vaping. And, yeah. you know, on social media, you know, I see a lot of people like talking about vaping, you know, saying like, it's healthier. It's not as bad as cigarettes. I see research that says otherwise. What say you about vaping versus otherwise? It's actually the chemicals. There's a vast array of chemicals in the vape oil and what goes into the lung. But even more than that, and I don't know how much people focus on this, is it's a thermal injury. So in other words, it produces very high heat in the lung. And the lung is quite sensitive to very high temperatures. And the damage can not only come from the chemicals that are contained in the vape oil, but also from the heat Mm. that's generated. It's much hotter smoke than cigarette smoke. So on balance, would you say because of that, is that why vaping research, when I see studies that say it's it's more damaging than cigarette smoke? That's my opinion, yeah. That's my understanding of the research, yeah. So it's really the heat that's literally singeing the lung tissue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is a good point. So, you know, for everybody who's listening out there, just know that this is really important because we're now going like, you know, to the man and he's saying that vaping is more toxic. It's more damaging to lungs than cigarette smoke and partially because of the heat of that vape, which cigarettes don't have quite that same temperature. So have you seen people at this stage? I mean, I've seen news reports of even like teenagers that have like needed to have lung transplants because of vaping. Is this something you've seen? Yeah, I have. It's already happening. Yeah, that's you know, scary. We've, we've, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of different kind of indications for lung transplant. Vaping would be one of them, but the one we haven't talked about, of course, 
of course, is the after effects of COVID pneumonia. We've transplanted as a community, as a country, we've transplanted hundreds of those patients now that had COVID pneumonia that did not recover from their lung disease mm -hmm. and were left with very damaged lung tissue and needed a transplant. That's not to scare your audience to think that if you've ever had you know, a case of COVID that you're going to need a lung transplant. It's not that. It's those patients that got very sick from the infection, mm -hmm. ended up on the mechanical ventilator or ended up on ECMO therapy that needed a lung transplant. But going back to the vaping situation is, you know, you're seeing young people like teenagers needing lung transplants. Yeah, that's how I started to have. Yeah. I mean, to me, if that doesn't scare anybody just with a reality check about vaping, I don't know what does. Really sad. And when someone does need a lung transplant, what's involved? Like how long is that surgery? What's the recovery like? Yeah, the surgery, well, first we'll start with the waiting time for the procedure is usually a few months at most centers, mm -hmm. two to three months, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. The surgery itself is six to eight hours. They mostly staying in the hospital two to three weeks afterwards. But then it's very frequent visits to see somebody like me at transplant programs across the country and back to work in six months, say, feeling pretty well by that time. And then hopefully, you know, living a very long time after that. About 90% of the patients that get a transplant, 87, 90% make it to the first year. So there's some risk involved. Mm -hmm. That means 10, 13% don't. Mm. But there's a much better survival than when I first started doing this in the early 90s. Certainly, we've gotten much better. And then how long do these transplants last for? Like if somebody's in their 20s and they're needing a lung transplant, let's say just from vaping or cystic fibrosis, how long does it lung last? It's been variable. I tell you, it's been all over the map. Once you get past that first year, I've had patients, you know, pass away in the second year and mm -hmm. I've had patients make it 22 years and 25 years and everything in between. It's highly variable. There are patients just for your audience edification that especially our younger patients that get a second transplant and then in very rare circumstances, a third. Wow. Oh my gosh. So yeah. in what's happening is the lung just stop functioning after a while? Like what's yeah. the indication, you know, for that? Yeah. The biggest obstacle, the long-term survival in lung transplant is chronic rejection. So in other words, just an unremitting rejection process of the lung that usually happens over years, but it results in the loss of lung function such mm -hmm. that the patient ends up looking very similar to how they did before we transplanted them. And like I said, we often retransplant those patients, but unfortunately, patients still die of that disease. Now, with cornea transplants, which I used to do early in my career for keratoconus, which is one of my specialties before we pioneered these other procedures to prevent transplants, the teaching had always been because of the experience was if you had to retransplant a cornea, like have a second cornea transplant, the risk of rejection went higher. When, with each subsequent cornea transplant, the risk kept going up. Is that the same with lungs, with repeat transplants? It seems to be. You know, the retransplant is a riskier operation generally for a lot of technical surgical reasons. You know, there's scar tissue that is developed around the lung due to the first transplant, mm -hmm. and the operation's more difficult. But I do think that in general, there's a higher rate of rejection in those patients. The data has been a little equivocal on that point, mm -hmm. but it, at least in my experience, that's been the case. Mm -hmm. 
And when somebody has a transplant, they need to be on anti-rejection medications pretty much for the rest of their life, right? That's correct. And in lung transplant, of all the solid organ transplants, we probably immunosuppress our patients the most because the lung is highly immunogenic mm -hmm. and it's also exposed to the outside world. And we use three different drugs and relatively high doses, although not as high as we used to when I started. We're now ratcheting that back. But yeah, it's immunosuppression for the rest of their life. So that sets them up to potentially get an infection. We had drugs to prevent that as well. And what are some experiences that people might have with some of those immunosuppressive drugs afterwards? It's keeping them alive. There's side effects and the patients get tired of, you know, some of the side effects. Some, you know, there's prednisone, so a steroid related drug mm -hmm. that has steroid related side effects, weight gain, glaucoma, yep. cataracts. Uh, density loss, yeah, cataracts, all kinds of different things. The other drugs mainly work on the kidneys, you know, so we see patients that are on long-term immunosuppression, ultimately develop renal dysfunction. And sometimes actually we've gone in and done a kidney transplant oh, on the patients wow. that have already received a lung transplant. So as somebody who really has the 30,000 foot view over this forest of lung issues, lung disease and lung health, what would you recommend for somebody to keep their lungs as healthy as possible for as long as possible, the rest of their life, preferably? Well, number one, two, and three are going to be don't smoke. And that means don't smoke anything. So don't smoke cigarettes. I would not vape. I've actually seen quite a bit of data come out more recently about marijuana. So as marijuana increasingly becomes more mainstream in our society, it's you know legal in what half the states mm -hmm. now or something like that. Yeah. We're seeing more and more research that it's not quite the benign drug that we thought it was maybe early on, mainly because there wasn't much research on it when it was illegal. Mm -hmm. We're seeing now a vast array of effects, lung disease, from chronic marijuana smoke. Mm. And that's concerning as well because, you know, as all of us know, in those certain states, there's a high preponderance of people smoking marijuana fairly regularly, although some are using the edible form, obviously. And to that point, if somebody's doing edibles, then at least they bypass the lung-related risks of smoking marijuana. That's right. And, that, and I haven't really seen any data, although it's written about, you know, in the lay press that the younger generation is more likely to take edible, the edible form mm -hmm. rather than the older generation that was more used to smoking marijuana. So perhaps there'll be less of the pulmonary effects. Now, what effects the edibles have on the other organ systems, I don't know. Right. I'm not an expert on that. Right, right, right. You know, it was making me think of something with like candles, just inhaling candles or incense. And the reason this comes to my mind, because I had a, a post on TikTok that got a lot of interaction. I was duetting a gentleman who was talking about the little like air fresheners that are synthetic that hang in your car, like the little right. Christmas tree ones and those fun ones. And Research right. has come out that not any lung side effects, but just other cognitive and other side mm -hmm. effects and diseases even were increased from the, you know, chronic use of those air fresheners. A couple of people were asking, actually quite a number of people asking, what about incense and what about candles? And I don't have an answer for that regarding the same effects that the air fresheners were having. But from a lung point of view, candle smoke and incense 
what would you say is or would you even know is that also a risk i have not seen any data about that i haven't seen anything written about that it probably exists but i haven't seen it i've been really focused on those things that are sort of directly inhaled into the lung vaping and marijuana especially because i think there's so much new coming out the cigarette story has been told obviously it's obvious but the vaping and the marijuana story is relatively new okay so not we don't know any candle effects from just the candle smoke or incense we just don't know doesn't no. mean it can't be doesn't mean it right. could but we just don't know no that's right. okay that's right well let's shift gears and talk a bit about your book and your career so when you wrote exhale were you already at stanford running the program or was this when you decided to transition out of you know direct clinical medicine I was transitioning out at that point. So I wanted to write a book about the ups and downs of doing this kind of work from a patient's perspective and from the people that provide this kind of care like I did. And I wanted to kind of give a behind the scenes look at how a transplant team works and how all of this happens. So I started writing the book when I left Stanford in 2016. And then takes a long time to write a book, as you know. Yes, it, does. And, um, <laughs> it didn't end up on the bookshelf until 2021. So it was a good, good five-year effort. But I'm glad it's out because I think the response has been good. I think there's a humanizing of the physician teams. And, you know, I think patients have at least told me that they now understand that we're actual human beings, which I think is a good thing. So. And how did you get that across in the book, Exhale? I think I just showed that, you know, when we lost a patient, a patient died on our waiting list, or we lost one after transplant, it hurt, you know, it hurt a lot. I became very attached to the people that we transplanted and their families. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if patients are quite aware of the toll that takes on us. And I wrote about that pretty honestly mm -hmm. and raw, mm -hmm. that I was toward the end of my career, especially very emotionally distraught when we would lose a patient. I took mm -hmm. it very personally. And I think perhaps some readers are surprised to hear that. They might think that their doctor just sort of moves on, mm -hmm. but I think many of us don't. Yeah. Do you find that sometimes doctors have to put up a bit of a defense mechanism so they're just not emotionally wrecked when they see tragedy from time to time like this? Like, what was your observation of other colleagues? Yeah, I think that happens a lot. In fact, I think I did it for most of my career. But really, two things happened to me that actually brought down my own defenses that I had around me. One was early on in my career, my father got a liver transplant. He had hepatitis mm. C due to a blood transfusion he received for a hip replacement. And so I saw it from the other side. So I became very emotionally invested in not just his outcome, but everyone's outcome because mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're all somebody's family member getting transplanted. Of and then the second thing that changed it for me was having kids of my own, you know, so I was transplanting a lot of young people. I, you know, talked to a lot of parents and I found it very difficult to separate their experience from what I think I would feel if one of my kids was in that kind of situation. And so as time went on, I found it harder and harder to deal with. And I started to focus more on the patients that didn't do well instead of the ones that did do mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Now, with regard to my colleagues, one interesting thing about doing this kind of work, and we had a team of 60 people at Stanford, 
is seeing the different reactions among the care team. Some people, at least outwardly, did not seem to be taking it, you know, terribly hard. They, it was their job and they would go to work and do it very well and then go home mm-hmm. and they seemed like they were fine. Mm-hmm. But then others like me, especially later in my career, I was taking it pretty hard. On the flip side, that just shows how much empathy and how much care you have as a physician. And while you were still in it, that could only, I can only imagine, it can only translate to better quality, more patient advocacy than otherwise. Would you agree with that or Yeah, I think so. And I, no, I think so. And I, you know, I worked hard on my patients' behalf. I think they understood that in real time. And I think, you know, they've, many of them have read the book over the years. I've cared for thousands of patients and many of them have read the book. And I think that they, you know, they really understand that, yeah, I got up every morning and and cared about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's many of us in the field that do that. I'm not the only one, but it was very difficult for me to separate how much I cared from accepting an outcome that was not good. Mm -hmm. And I never, I don't think I ever really learned how to do that well Mm -hmm. during the course of my career. Are there some examples from the book you can share? Yeah, there are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all of us have patients that we get closer to than others. I mean, that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. And there was a young woman that we transplanted that I call Dr. D in the book because she was somebody that knew a lot of medicine. She would tell me she knew a lot of medicine. She was a young woman who had her feet up on the desk every time I went into her clinic room. (laughs) And she was usually looking at her labs on the computer, which I'm sure violated a few <laughs> regulations. Yeah. And she and I became very close. We were kindred spirits. I, you know, I thought of her as my own daughter mm. in a lot of ways. She would climb, you know, mountains on the weekends. She would jump out of airplanes. She was really grabbing it all. Wow. And I write about in the book, she developed chronic rejection about seven years after her transplant. Oh. And we put her back on the waiting list. And she ended up on a mechanical ventilator Mm. and I was desperately trying to find a lung and I write that in the book and I would just wouldn't accept my whole team was, we got, you know, telling me we got to let her go and, you know, it's over and blah, blah, blah. And I just couldn't accept it. And I just kept her alive until I basically had to finally talk to the parents and tell them that Mm. we were going to stop and that she was no longer a transplant candidate. But it was in those moments where, I felt myself not, you know, practicing really rational medicine. I was practicing emotional mm. medicine. And I wanted to write those scenes in the book so people can get an idea about what that's like. I just can't even imagine. Just can't even imagine being in that position, especially when you develop a bond, because, you know, you're right. Some patients you develop more of that just natural connection with and rapport and relationship than others. So, yeah. Wow. Can't imagine. What are some other areas in the book that you wanted to share that really reflect why you wrote the book? Yeah, I think a lot of it also is father-son story in a lot of ways. You know, my father was actually a world-renowned physician and had a great career, but needed a liver transplant. So suddenly Mm -hmm. he he became one of my patients and he, you know, I, I was actually guiding him through the transplant process. And, you know, we were very close to each other, but like any father and son, didn't see it eye to eye on everything. (laughs) And he became, you know, somebody that I had to direct instead of him teaching me, I was teaching him Mm. about this new world of transplant. And he did well after the procedure. He lived for 12 years. Mm. 
he had a pretty fulfilling life during those 12 year periods and eventually died mm. of the transplant. But it was very, not an, it was somewhat unique to have a transplant doctor have a father who got a transplant, you know, just that relationship changes at that point. So a lot of the book is focused on that. And then the final part really was, you know, what happens to any of us as physicians when we decide, you know, what we've been doing for 20, 25 years, we really don't want to do anymore. Mm -hmm. And we think it's time to, you know, turn the page and do something else. You know, how do we make that decision? What's the thought process? And I write about that toward the end of the book. Well, can you talk about that, that you transitioned out of clinical practice? And what did you, maybe you can explain what you transitioned into and what caused you to choose that direction? Well, I think that I had had a good run in transplant, but I do think it was over for me. I think that it had taken its toll mm -hmm. and it was obvious to me, my wife, my family. My daughters were growing up and I wanted to, you know, make sure that I was, you know, there emotionally and physically as they were growing up. So I wanted to change career paths and I knew that it was going to be largely in a non-clinical role. And I basically got out a pad of paper and tried to figure out, you know, what do I do well? What don't I do well? And what don't I want to do? And, you know, one of the things that I think I did well during the course of my career was build transplant programs and help make them perform well. And so what I do now is I actually consult with transplant programs that are struggling for a variety of reasons, whether it's clinical team dynamic issues, there's some team dysfunction out there, and I write about that in the book. Mm. And I help them from an administrative standpoint, an infrastructure standpoint, financial standpoint. And I figured that's really what I know how to do. And I should take what I know about transplant, which I love, and try to bring that to centers across the country. So that's what my consulting group is focused on. We have a group of six of us. So what you just discussed is something I had no idea even existed about dysfunction of the transplant group. You're talking about yeah. the staff, the doctors, the team. That's, you know, what's happening sometimes that you diagnose in those programs. Yeah, and I saw it in my own program at Stanford, and I write about it pretty honestly. There were times when we didn't get along together as a team mm -hmm. that well. And there were times when we were doing really well when we got along great. So, But there are times when teams, especially transplant teams that have you know big personalities, big egos. <laughs> what, surgeons with big personalities? Yeah, yeah right. Egos? Mine included. <laughs> yeah, I mean, full disclosure, mine included. <laughs> And what happens, I think, is when things go well, everybody's happy, right? Success has a thousand fathers or whatever the saying is. But I think that the programs I work with, things aren't going very well or else they wouldn't have called me in the first mm -hmm. place. And you see finger pointing, you see team dysfunction, you see teams that don't like each other very much. Mm -hmm. They don't actually know each other very well mm -hmm. in a lot of instances. And that's bad for patients. All that stuff is bad for patients. It shows up. And what I try to do now is coach the teams through all of that and try to figure out a way that they can get on the same page. And that's probably the number one value that I can bring to programs right now. Well, what happens when you find people that have all these different personalities that aren't getting along? How do you help make everybody kumbaya, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's around common mission, right? So I think what you have to do is get them all in a room, which I do, 
and say, let's hash this out. What do we all want? And everybody said, great transplant program, good patient outcomes. We want to do a high volume of transplants. Okay, great. We all agree on that. Now, what are we disagreeing about here? And, you know, there's all kinds of things that people can disagree on. And I try to bring their disagreements that are about clinical things into a place where they can agree on something. Mm -hmm. So if they don't think patient X is a transplant candidate and they argue about that back and forth, let's figure out how we can consistently have criteria that we use to get the kind of patients that we want to transplant it here. Mm -hmm. And just like in any negotiation, you want to find the things that they agree about and start there. I also am a big, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'm a big believer in happy hour. And hmm. so what I asked the teams to do, and we did quite a bit of this at Stanford, is regularly go out together as a team. You know, make it kind of mandatory. We, can't, we couldn't make it entirely mandatory. Yeah. But once a month, we are going to go from five to seven somewhere, and we're going to have a couple of drinks, and we're going to get to know each other, and we're going to meet outside of the hospital. When we were doing our best there, that's what we did. And when we weren't doing that well, we didn't want to be together. I mean, honestly, I think that is a paradigm that could be applied to any business setting, in fact, right? You're right. Like You're any right. group of You're people right. that are working together and just taking them out socially in that environment brings, you know, walls down, people get open up, they get to know each other. And yeah, so... And also, as Ben Franklin says, <laughs> you know, the wine goes in, the truth comes out. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And then some teams ask me, okay, fine, we get to know each other, but we still disagree about the clinical things. And I said, well, I have an answer for that too. Let's do a retreat where we go on a Saturday and we, you know, go off campus somewhere. And we did this at Stanford too. We meet all day Saturday and we deconstruct the transplant program into little component parts. And the whole team's there, and we just talk about the things that we're going to do, and we write it down, and we agree on it, so that every time we do a transplant, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We already agreed on it. And mm. that's also something that I found useful to do a couple times a year. I mean, honestly, David, in just listening to you, I mean, so much of what you're talking about, like I said earlier, could be applied outside of medicine to just other organizations. Have you ever been approached by businesses to work with them on being more yeah. successful, and yeah. et cetera? Yeah, I have. And the reverse is true, too. I've actually stolen a lot of the ideas from the business world. <laughs> I think they're ahead of, you know, in many ways ahead of where medicine is. Medicine tends to have a lot of individuals, right? We believe strongly in our individual freedoms. I think a lot of these practices are done in business. I wish medicine would adopt more of them. You know, the checklist that I'm sure you have to go through when you do your procedures mm -hmm. and all that stuff mm -hmm. was not invented in medicine. It was, you know, invented in the airline right. industry as far as I Absolutely. know. Absolutely. So I think a lot of these things are being done in businesses. But yes, to answer your question, I've, uh, I've met with Wall Street trading groups and I have met with the United Airline pilots and teams of other sorts as well yeah. that have to, you know, have to perform together. I think it's all the same. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of more smaller businesses sort of have a little bit of grasping for tools, you know, versus a very large, like, you know, public company, which will have consultants yeah. come in. But I'm thinking more of small businesses 
that you know can certainly benefit potentially from some of your your coaching, if you will. So maybe, maybe, yeah, no, I think it's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe you could tell everybody where we can get the book. Exhale. Sure. Yeah, I think the best place to find it. So if my website is David Weil, David W E I L L M D dot com. So David dot com, and in that. You can find a link to your favorite bookseller on the website. I also write quite a bit of op-eds for national publications that folks might be interested in. Please describe them. Yeah, yeah, please do tell. Yeah, I've written about a lot of things. Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Newsweek, Times, Chicago Tribune, on and on. I write about things in medicine, not so much transplant, but things in medicine that sort of strike me. They come haphazardly, mm -hmm. but, you know, there was certainly a lot of, to write about during COVID, but I think there's a lot of issues out there that I think in medicine, and that sounds like you're doing this with your podcast, that need good translation, that needs to be an interpreter, mm -hmm. and I try to serve that role and write a good number of op-eds, so, which I enjoy as well. I think it's been fun. So it sounds like people could just do a news search like in Google and see some of those op-eds probably pretty easily. Absolutely. And they exist on my website oh. too. So if anybody's interested, yeah. Well, please, everybody do check out his website, check out the book, fascinating book. And as you've heard from our discussion, you know, David's just a fascinating person. He's just got so much experience and wisdom and one of those, you know, doctors that's just really human and you can relate to. So thank you so much for taking the time. This has really been enjoyable and fun and really educational too at the same time and especially about what we talked about the risks of vaping you know on my social media this comes up a lot and i learned something new that the heat of that vape smoke is also largely why it's more toxic and damaging to the lungs which i didn't know absolutely and i think yeah, a lot of people don't absolutely. know that Right. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right. Well, take care and have a nice rest of your summer. Okay. You too. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dr. Brian Boxer-Walkler's Health Show. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit nocaphealthshow.com. Don't miss another episode and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to follow Dr. Brian on TikTok at Brian Boxer Walkler MD. And remember, Dr. Brian is a real doctor, but he is not your doctor. He is here to provide general information, not medical advice. So you should always check with your doctor before relying on any information.